Welcome to Cat Talk Radio with your host, Molly DeVos. Molly is a cat expert and certified feline training and behavior specialist. With her expertise and her guests, you'll learn how to interpret and control behavior issues with your cat, how to entertain and converse with them, and keep up on the latest feline news around the world. Now, here is Molly DeVos. Welcome, everybody, to Cat Talk Radio. I'm your host, Molly DeVos, and today we have our monthly episode with Dr. Brian Hurley. He is the medical director for AmeriVet Veterinary Partners. Welcome to the show, Dr. Hurley. Thank you. Glad to be back. Today we're I'm sorry. Jump oh, I said, glad to be back once again. <laughs> We're glad to have you back. I always get great feedback from our listeners, by the way, of our of our episodes and with you in particular, and always interested in learning more and and having access to you know feline medical information is super super useful. So we really appreciate you doing this. Oh, it's my pleasure. So we're gonna answer a question or address a topic that a a listener sent in. And I'm just going to read you what what she sent us. It's from Diane D. Sends, I listened to your recent show with Dr. Hurley about FIV and FELV, and it was quite interesting. I'd love to hear more about FIP. Now, for everybody's edification, FIP stands for Feline Infectious Periontitis. It's a feline coronavirus. It's not COVID. Um, and it affects both wild and domestic cats. She goes on to say, we lost our kitten to this disease a year ago. Two vets told us there were no treatment, no cure, and advised euthanasia, which we did. However, I know someone who obtained meds from Canada and cured her cat, but it cost about $10,000. I'd like to know more about this disease. We're sorry to hear of the loss of your kitten. That's that's certainly always difficult. And let's just start out with defining what it what it is. Is 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 FIP the same as panleukemia, or are those two different viruses? No, panleukopenia is a different virus. That's more in line with, like, say, parvovirus in the canine. So that would be the feline form of the parvovirus where uh, FIP stems from the feline enteric coronavirus itself. So it's very similar to, you know, a coronavirus like we have on the human side, but, you know, but they're two distinct disease processes. Obviously one's affecting humans and this is going to be the one affecting cats. And in general, a large majority of our, cats have been exposed or could be carrying this coronavirus and we may not even know it because there isn't really a good test and the symptoms often may not ever show or they could be a mild case of diarrhea that responds to supportive treatment or it could be uh, some mild upper respiratory signs that again kind of you know respond to uh, our typical supportive treatments and then they just kind of clear up and they never really progress to FIP where we get FIP is where you get a mutation of that coronavirus that then becomes the feline infectious peritonitis virus 
mm-hmm. and the active form of true FIP that as you know, the listener, you know, talked about um, up until recently, there was nothing we could do except try to support them and keep them as comfortable as possible. But a large majority of them, once they start exhibiting those FIP signs um, and get suspected, or we have everything that says, yes, this is FIP, ultimately euthanasia was the um, option that that most veterinarians had to go to just because we didn't want our pets to suffer. Yeah. Now there's a dry and a wet FIP, right? I hear that. What are the differences? Correct. So in the, you know, the dry, both of them are an an inflammatory type process. So it's inflammatory processes of blood vessels and organs and brain. And so they, they both create inflammation. The wet form actually with that inflammation, particularly around the blood vessels allows fluid to be dumped into typically the abdomen is the primary site that we'd see it. So if we have that young uh, kitten or young cat that comes in because we see a high representation in cats a yeah. year and a half and younger. And, you know, 50% of our FIPs can be seen in, in cats less than seven months of age. They'll all of a sudden come in with this pot bellied appearance. They have fevers. They're not doing well. Typical treatments haven't helped them with antibiotics and the supportive care And, you know, if you were to tap the abdomen to get some of that fluid off, it's this characteristic high protein filled fluid, kind of yellow looking. And then, you know, as veterinarians, we go, oh, gosh, you know, this could be FIP, you know, and and obviously a diagnosis that we always wanted to avoid having to make just because, again, you know, when I was practicing, we really didn't have anything at our disposal to treat them. Right. Right. And, and it's true. And you see, of course, being in the shelter world and around so many foster kittens and fosters, it is always that kitten with a huge belly. And the first thing you think of is, you know, parasites and worms and things like that. And, but when they have that upper respiratory symptoms combined with it, and as you said, not responding to worming and antibiotics, then it's always dire. Right. It, it tends to be a diagnosis of exclusion, which sometimes a lot of things are. You have to start it. You always want to start at hopefully the most likely and usually the most likely are those things that we have the ability to treat. So you're you're absolutely right when you see that pot-bellied appearance in a kit and you're, oh, they're overburdened with roundworms. So let's deworm them and everything's going to start taking care of itself. We know a lot of our upper respiratories can be viral and we know viral infections don't respond to antibiotics, but most of the time, and this is where that concern of going from coronavirus to FIP is, is everything revolves around the immune system. And so when these viruses hit, the immune systems become weak. Then you get the secondary invaders of bacteria and those are the usually it's the gunky eyes and and that gunkiness oftentimes is a result of bacterial secondary infections Mm. so we try to keep those at bay while the body fights off the virus itself yeah 
Yeah. And, and so you say that it mostly occurs in young cats and certainly I see it almost exclusively in kittens, very rarely in adult cats, but is it possible for, you know, four or five year old cat to get it? Anything is always possible because we know the exposures there, but as our pets age, their immune systems and their exposures to things become so much greater that those are going to be the rarity that we would, you know, see it develop at that time frame. And I think because we know that the the biggest way they get it is from the queens, you know, early in their their life cycle. Um, you know, the mother's passing it on to the kitten, the kitten has it, then it mutates. And then it, it, and while it's actually in the coronavirus form, that's where it's most contagious and why we see it a lot in shelter type situations, cattery type situations where there's high volume. We know sometimes the stresses uh, affect the immune system. And once that immune system isn't functioning appropriately, it gives these viruses and bacterial infections a chance to, to take hold because their systems just aren't as strong as those older cats or those cats that are in a home. Yeah. So, so if they can get it, so if I'm hearing you properly, primarily they're getting it from nursing a mom that already is carrying the virus may not have symptoms, but, but is carrying it, they get it. And then it, it incubates and can either be asymptomatic and nothing happens, or it can develop into obviously a a very serious life-threatening viral experience. What's the timeframe? So like, could it take six months from, it could catch it from their mom nursing and then, you know, go through the shelter and get adopted and four or five months later, have it show up that long? I mean, it can show up at any point. Cause obviously if you think about if they're primarily getting that exposure in the five, six, seven week, eight week timeframe, and it may not show for a while, a lot of times the body will develop the antibodies within a seven to 10 day period to start controlling that, you know, virus and keeping it, you know, at bay. It's just when they're in those situations of um, large, you know, large quantities of cats or number of, of cats and the immune system is affected, then you'll start to see it and it can show up, you know, one and a half years of age and younger, is that mm. primary time frame that we see it? So that's where um, Cornell University, you know, states seventy percent of cases diagnosed are in cats less than a year and a half of age. Mm-hmm. But it tells you that it can they can be older. It's just not as common, right? And this listener says that um, that that their kitten was was diagnosed with it, right? Told us no treatment. So how? How do you diagnose it? Are there tests now or is it just ruling out everything else and saying this is what it has to be? It's a combination. So I think one, uh, you know, as you're treating your, you know, as we treat our patients and they're not responding typically, you know, the way we would typically expect them to, you know, we start 
going down our list, whether it's, you know, blood work and do we see, partic- particularly with FIP, it's a high fever that's unresponsive to uh, any treatments. And so then you start see, you know, looking at the blood work and seeing elevations of protein levels and mm-hmm. and sometimes it's hitting some of the organs because of the inflammation that's created. The wet form, as we talked about earlier, almost becomes a no-brainer. When you know you've already dewormed them and you've done some of the other things, so it makes it less likely. There are tests that you can send out, PCR tests and and a variety of other testing that we can do that can show us that, yes, the virus is there, uh, the coronavirus is there, but they're not you know, foolproof, you know, you have to take that entire picture. And I think we tend to talk about this a lot when you and I are talking about disease processes. I don't care whether it's human, whether it's canine, whether it's our exotics or it's our feline patients, everything has to be taken in the context of what's happening in multiple things. What's their lifestyle and how are they responding to treatment and and all these things and what are the tests showing tests are great but you have to put it into the 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 picture they're not always going to while there are some tests that go yes this is what you have sometimes you have to look at the overall picture because we know sometimes even in leukemia aids a positive test could be a false positive just like we know a negative test could be a false negative and so we have to keep it on our minds and have it on our differential list. So eventually we get to it. And like I said, I think this is a good one for exclusion because there isn't just a definitive test that says, yes, you have it or no, you don't. Yeah. And, and is it something, you know, in, in the height of the coronavirus pandemic and COVID-19 pandemic, you know, a, a cat, turned up with it and everybody went crazy about, oh my gosh, is it going to be transmittable from cats? Is this what they were talking about? Or did a cat actually get COVID-19 as a separate virus? They showed, you know, that the tigers ended up with COVID-19. Okay. um, From my recollection. So everything's possible. This is one of those things where we go, we know that the feline enteric coronavirus, while contagious from cat to cat, and can be highly contagious cat to cat, we don't see it being contagious to human. Mm-hmm. Um, and then likewise, once it becomes FIP, the FIP virus isn't contagious to, you know, from cat to cat to cat, like, you get the the coronavirus. It's more of that mutational state. So uh, it's less likely to be contagious once they get really sick. Mm -hmm. So once, let's say you unfortunately end up with a kitten or cat with, with FIP and other than supporting the symptoms, is there any cure for this? So currently there is no FDA approved cure for FIP. However, uh, there is a treatment that 
has been studied both, you know, in an organized setting and in clients that have used the treatment in their cats and have seen success, particularly treating the wet form has shown a greater response to the treatment than the dry form of FIP. Uh, you know, it's a, a, a drug that right now just has a, a number to it called GS441524. Uh, it is being studied and they're having trials. And, you know, one day because it seems to have, or, you know, it's working in our cats in the treatment of FIP, you know, I would probably be able to take the leap to say we'll probably see an FDA approved treatment at some point. But here's the problem when you get treatments like this. It's really important to one, always keep your veterinarian in the loop as to thought processes and have them help figure out the best course of action. Um, you have to be a little understanding that after being out of practice for three years and knowing that there was a treatment up in Canada based on this question, I did my research to, to even find out what that treatment could look like, um, you know, and so that's where I kind of found what the therapy was, but because there's no regulation of it, not everybody's making it the exact same way. So there's a lot of variability, risk, benefit. It appears to be a fairly safe treatment, but there's still a lot of research to be done and and, you know, like I said, you could walk into your vet tomorrow and go, hey, I hear there's a treatment for FIP and they'll go, no, I, I don't think so. I mean, that's could be a valid answer because, you know, they're going to only talk about, F, you know, FDA approved drugs, you know, the sure. ones that we know are on the market to treat. Otherwise, we're going outside the realm which we have to be careful with because if if we go down the road of using a drug that's not FDA approved and it's definitely being used off label, that sets up a whole unique circumstance for us in documentation because we're using something that isn't approved. Yeah, yeah, and and obviously could probably potentially you know risk your your livelihood and your practice uh, understood just like regular medical doctors for people you know they're they're not going to suggest you buy drugs off the internet you know to to treat but, something so but there's studies out there you know it just has to be a, a conversation and an educational one where the the veterinarian's going to have to learn as well as you know the client's going to have to to understand you know, the hard part is, and it struck me really interesting when I started reading about it, you know, first thing that I saw was, you know, 95% of cats are cured from, you know, from FIP. That sounds really appealing. Yeah. <laughs> As a veterinarian, I'm like, man, if I have a treatment that takes a virus that I can cure almost 100%, knowing nothing's ever 100%. Mm -hmm. Our vaccines aren't hundred percent. So, wow, that is really intriguing. But then as you continue, you know, to read and then you start looking at some of the studies, things get a little more interesting, but it's, 
you know, this is definitely, a, you know, something to keep an eye on because this is a disease process that really, you know, as the reader found out, ended up, you know, uh, ending in euthanasia. And if this potentially could prevent that, it's something that we want to keep a really close eye on because it could be a game changer in the world of FIP. And yeah. I'm kind of excited to know that it's out there and we'll keep keep my ears and eyes looking for articles, you know, more articles on this to even educate myself. Yeah. And I was going to reach out to some of our shelter partners too, because I know that, you know, that's, that's the community of course, that is seeing the most FIP and, and I know I've heard that, well, it's treatable and, you know, we've had cats survive it. And I'd be interesting to know too, what the, what did they do? What, what kind of treatments were they? I know they weren't spending $10,000 on, on drugs, you know, because it's, it's shelter fosters and a shelter system. So there has to be some, something that they're doing supportively and it may just be, you know, supportive and some make it and some don't. Right. Anything that can help strengthen the immune system, keep them strong, keep them well-nourished, keep them from getting dehydrated, keeping their appetite going, because we know that, you know, cats um, in particular, when they stop eating, you know, for us, we can go days without eating. Uh, so can our canines. They're not going to waste away or have major effects in a short period of time. But in our cats, within three days, their body can you know, start going through changes and they'll start pulling fat into the liver. I mean, it can be devastating. And so independent of what the disease process is, FIP, anything, if we don't get them back on their food or get nutrition into them, we're going to be fighting a secondary thing that can be fatal um, in and of itself. And so, yeah, FIP, started the process, but maybe it's a secondary thing that ended up doing it. If we can stop some of these secondary issues to the best of our ability, maybe we can help the body, you know, fight these things off. And, and if it's not a severe case, maybe that's why. Yeah, maybe. Some make it some, you know, some don't because we're able to control some of the secondary effects of the disease process. Yeah. And sadly, by the time they find out, usually it's a kitten in a litter. And by the time they find out, then the other kittens have already all been exposed, you know. Uh, so there's prevention is is difficult in those, you know, there's not really anything you can do to prevent it in a concentrated animal population. No. You know, it's just they're going to get exposed to it. Yeah. And there, I mean, there, there is a vaccine on the market for FIP but it's not even really recommended because the effectiveness just never proved to Hmm. be at the level that would make it useful. I used it in practice when they thought this was going to help us just like the leukemia vaccine, you know, does, but, you know, sometimes vaccines just don't work, you know, and, and that's, that's human and an animal. I, I mean, I remember, like, I've always wondered why we have a, a pretty good vaccine for Lyme disease in our dogs, but yet we don't have a 
good one in people. And part of it was they just couldn't get one that after three shots could maintain a 50, 50. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're 50, 50 probably on our own. So <laughs> right. again, so they pulled it from the market. Right. And so, and that's kind of where the FIP vaccine, it just never proved to, to uh, impact enough in a positive way because obviously our shelters would, you know, be given every cat FIP if they, if they could, if it was going to prevent it from, you know, going from the coronavirus to the FIP virus through the mutation process. Yeah. Cause the mortality rate is high, right? I mean, it's what, yeah, it's usually fatal once, once they get it before without treatment, you know, um, you know, this, this, this new therapy may change, you know, change that dramatically, but yeah. And that's why, uh, the reader learned that unfortunately, um, euthanasia often ends up being the, you know, the, the right course of action. And I think you mentioned something very important too, is in a lot of our disease processes, by the time the owner picks it up in the cat, they're usually more advanced. And and we've talked about this before because they're just so good at hiding things. It's just the nature of our feline patients. Um, They, uh, you know, I've always said dogs will tell you when, when they stub their toe and cats won't. And so sometimes that goes against us too, because by the time we see it, it's, you know, it's, it may be easier to make a diagnosis, but then they're so far, um, into the process that it's hard to reverse it. Yeah. Yeah. That's sad. It's, I know it's always a, it's, it's the diagnosis you don't want to get when you're fostering for, for sure. It's, right. you know, really, 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 really sad. So, yeah. And I know, you know, and I know how difficult it is, you know, it, it's a, it's a hard thing when we have to have those conversations about euthanasia. And the one thing that, you know, if I could, you know, share, you know, with the listeners is, the majority of veterinarians, because we always know there's always a few, but the majority of veterinarians are here to save our pets. And when we have to discuss euthanasia, it's usually because we know based on experience and reading materials and being educated that sometimes that is just something that we do need to talk about and start that process so owners know it's okay. I always tell my clients, I'm the one that has to do it. And I have to go home and spend time with my family and have dinner and and you know be able to get up the next day and go through my day again. And the only way I can do that is to know that if I have to talk about euthanasia or perform a euthanasia, that I know that I'm doing the best thing that I think we can do for the, that patient. And that's what allowed me to, you know, practice medicine as long as I did. And while sad, I knew I was helping my patient. And, and so, you know, I wanted to share that because I know it's a really harsh conversation to have, 
And believe me, it's not easy for us either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it just, yeah, it, it's, it's very sad when you get to that point that it, that that's the most humane thing to do to, you know, to keep them from suffering. As you said that, you know, with the kittens, it's usually the first symptom is like you said, not eating, you know, all of a sudden yeah. not eating. And there is nothing more stressful on a foster than trying to get a kitten to eat. You know, I, I, I had that happen recently and I probably had 15 different purees and cans of food and just all kinds of stuff, just anything, eat anything. And they just, you know, had no appetite. And when that happens, I mean, that, that, that level of discomfort for those poor guys of, you know, they're starving and, and yet, and they've got this virus and they, you know, probably feel like we do when we have COVID-19 and the organs start to shut down and it's, it cannot be comfortable. And cats do hide their discomfort very, very well. You know, they, they, they just go quiet and dormant and you don't think anything's wrong. Like, oh, it must just be sad today or you're not feeling well. And there could be something really serious going on. So, right. Yeah, I get no, that. That's why we always say when, you know, it's one thing when it lasts a short period of time, but, you know, if it's consistent, you know, in, in our cats, if they're not bouncing back within that 24 hour period, it might be time to make a call just, um, just to be safe. Yeah. You know, yes. It's an exam. We know it can be stressful. You know, we've talked about that, but the changes can occur so quickly and the faster we can, uh, get our hands on them and, and make our diagnosis and help them, the, the better chance we have at helping them, uh, fight through whatever it is they're, they're going, you know, going through at that moment in time. Yeah. So if you have a young kitten that has upper respiratory symptoms like watery eyes, sneezing, warm nose, you can usually tell when a cat is running a fever, you know, they've run body temperatures, 102 kind of average. So they're higher than us. So they do feel warmer to us, to our touch than we do. But you can usually feel their ears when they're, when they have a fever, you can like us with your forehead, at least I can tell. And their noses are dry and warm rather than cold and wet. And, you know, eyes will be watery. Sometimes you'll see the whale eye. And if you combine all of that with a big bloated belly, then you need to be sure to rule that out as quickly as possible. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, sad topic today, but thank you for joining us and filling us in and answering this listener's question. Oh, you're very welcome. And to everybody listening, if you have questions for Dr. Hurley in the medical space with cats, be sure to email them to me at molly at cattalkradio.com. And we'll get them on our queue of topics to talk about. And uh, till next time, keep calm and purr on. You can be a cat lifesaver by helping to keep us on the air. In the U.S., about 10 cats per hour are euthanized in shelters due to behavior issues. Through this educational radio show, behavior consultations, seminars, and articles, Cat Behavior Solutions intercepts cat behavior problems in the home, reducing the number of cats who are surrendered to shelters. Make a donation at catbehaviorsolutions.com. That's catbehaviorsolutions.com. 
Looking for products that address specific cat behavior issues? On our website, cattalkradio.com, you'll find things that will create enrichment in the environment for your cat. Toys that will reduce boredom, the world's best and safest nail clippers, and much more. All proceeds support our mission, reducing the number of cats surrendered to shelters. Stop by the site and pick up a few tips and tidbits for your cat today. Visit cattalkradio.com and look for The Behavior Shop. Thanks for tuning in to Cat Talk Radio. Please join your host, Molly DeVos, for another episode of the program on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, go make a connection with your feline friend.